There comes a time to question what we've been raised to believe are immutable facts of the universe. Maybe it's just growing up, or a disruptive tragedy, or experiencing a great story at just the right time. Letting go of those ideas can leave you struggling to figure out what is truly right or wrong, good or bad, hopeful or hopeless. But there is some good in this world, and it's worth finding, and it's worth fighting for. Welcome to Cinema Credo, conversations on film and faith. I'm Adam Glass. Strength and mercy for me, and for me every day. Life and light will bleed into love. I'm uh, Justin Ridgely. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, lived in Hilliard, Ohio, and grew up in the Church of Christ, a right-wing fundamentalist church. And dare I say, it affected who I became. Um, But a sort of movement away from uh, that church has resulted in a lot of things. So in 2001, I saw the film Fellowship of the Rings and I can't say that it affected who I ultimately became in all manners but uh, it definitely you know reflected something inside me that I felt like was there the whole time and it was not acknowledged by the type of Protestant evangelicalism that I grew up in and was the the sea that I swam in. So you told me that when you first saw this, your mother took you to see it. Uh, I take it your reaction to the movie was probably different than hers. Yes. Well, I think I was afraid of the film. I was surprised at the film. I think maybe I had seen the animated version, and then maybe she had seen the animated version. She definitely was uh, an avid fantasy reader. Okay. Um, But I had not read very much fantasy, and certainly had not read... The Lord of the Rings. And so when she took me to see it, I think she thought that I had seen or knew that I had seen the animated or something like that and was like, okay, this is important um, for so me she, to see. She, she had thought that you were already a fan of it. Well, she had thought that like I had, it was at least familiar. And I think that there were elements of it that I was like, oh, right, this is like this. Like I definitely had seen, I guarantee you I had seen The Hobbit, yeah. the animated feature. Yeah. Um, and... And so I knew things like that. But I don't know if I had seen the animated Lord of the Rings, which is condensed into like two films or yeah, two animated yeah. features, something like that. Um, I, uh, The Hobbit and, and the Return of the King cartoon, the Rankin-Bass ones, right. are... Uh, there's some, I didn't experience them until I was in high school, mm-hmm. so just before these movies came out, no doubt. Uh, but they are, they are a trip. There's something. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're definitely a sort of like, especially if you're familiar with the source material, you're sort of like, oh, I guess, I guess you did that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you were limited with what you had, but you did that. I, uh, I will say, uh, in watching uh, the Return of the King, uh, the film version, 
theater. I was a little disappointed that the song from the cartoon, uh, Where There's a Whip, There's a Way, that the orcs sing. Uh, I was really disappointed not to hear it. Well, I mean, there's lots, all sorts of songs we're all disappointed for not having been featured. Now, of course, that one wasn't one that was uh, that was true to the book. I don't think. <laughs> you know, the the the, the, uh, the, the book guitar solo of where there's a whip, there's a way. But... Tolkien could have used a couple um, funk guitar, really funk bass solos. Yes. Uh, he has quite a lot of songs, and they are quite long. And so, uh, having at least a bass background would have sure, surely helped some of them. <laughs> a little bit. Let them flow a little bit better. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the film has limited songs, uh, and I, I think... For the best. That, yeah, it might be for the best, very much. Uh, this film, and, and you talked about this while we were watching it, but uh, the morality of this film is very black and white. Yes, that's uh, one of its... I maybe great good features, I yeah. guess. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting though because it is, and and maybe it isn't. And we talked about it a little later in the film. You know, yeah, everyone starts in this idyllic, and particularly the hobbits are uh, are these everyman, uh, just salt of the earth. Definitely, and the uh, the. Uh, Elves are essentially angels. <laughs> yes, cruel angels yeah. who have no remorse for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, these supernatural beings who, who have no uh, no care for the ways of man or no. lessers. Uh, but uh, but at the same time, you know, Gandalf Gandalf gives Frodo that speech. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise can assume animals. And then over the course of the next uh, 40 minutes of the movie, right, they kill, just a, kill lot a lot of yeah, nameless, a lot of, nameless A lot of deciding. Yeah, a lot of deciding going on there. Uh, which I think is, is also interesting to... You know, I think... I come from a similar background to you, though I, I, yeah, I'm willing to wager that your uh, your church was was a little more conservative than than what I come out of. Not always Polit- clear, but not yeah. always, not always. I think politically on par for sure. Uh, I feel like in what we've talked about, there might be more of an authoritarian streak with your denomination that I didn't always see in mine, but that doesn't mean it didn't exist. Yeah, it just means I never. Depends on where you are, where you live, right? Right, and it depends on uh, whether or not you're pressing its buttons. Um, but it's always it's interesting in in that form of Christianity, uh, the balance between those ideals of of you don't get to decide, and then also have no qualms about. <laughs> Right. Deciding. Yeah, it it seems like a lot of um, evangelical Christians very pro death penalty, yeah. um, also very anti Christian persecution in other countries. Yeah, but not in a very weird way too, though, right? Because uh, take take Iraqi Christians for mm-hmm. instance. 
Yeah, within the last few Please. years, we've seen. Well, we've we've seen we've we've outright seen uh, ISIS behead Iraqi Christians, and that yes. is that is always played within Christian media here as a reason for us to uh, destroy ISIS. Certainly, uh, but they're also supporting an administration that is actively deporting those same Christians back to Syria and Iraq, where they will face that death. And it's just, it's a, it's a real, it's a purposeful disconnect. And it has less to do with religion than, say, white supremacy. Uh, yes. But the history of those in the West are tied together. I mean, that's endemic in many churches. Right. And endemic in Tolkien's work. And endemic in Tolkien's we work. We run into the people, the few people who we run into that are brown are evil people. Yeah. And so we don't escape. Right. I mean, even in this black and white. There's clearly good people. There's clearly bad people. But also, oof, some of the bad people, all the brown people are clearly bad. All and the brown people are oof. bad, but all of their leaders are white. Um, unclear with the Haradrim. Oh. Unclear with the Haradrim. All right. They're, they're an unknown, known, unknown land um, that we don't understand their leaders. They're merely drawn to Sauron's will. Um... There, and I suppose we never see Sauron in the flesh. So no, speak, of course. So. Besides his black armor, yeah. Um, he no. I mean, these people are drawn, but they don't have. Uh, I mean, they're they're to use the words of the right non-playable characters. <laughs> they're people we don't associate with. We never understand them. We don't seek to understand them in these films. Yeah, they are merely brown bads. I feel like when I'm you're talking about that uh, in the opening uh, chapters of, uh, of Douglas Adams' uh, Dirt Gently Solistic Detective Agency, we're introduced to this character of the electric monk, who uh, is a uh, labor-saving device and is able to believe things for you, and, and is actually a uh, a marketing aspect of him is that he can believe up to. Uh, 11 contradictory things at the oh, same time. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. it's a really a really interesting uh, little satire of, of the way people hold religious views and, and you know, even non-religious views. Too. Oh, for sure. Um, but so so often lately, I've been thinking, and not just on, on even necessarily a global scale or on an atrocity scale, but the amount of people I know who believe... Uh, in God's grace, but also believe there's no such thing as a free lunch. Oof. <laughs> and that there's... Uh... Yeah, no, that's hard because it's like there's this sort of effort you're supposed to be putting out into the world that's right. supposed to magically... Maybe not magically, but it's supposed to to be this grace yeah. you're supposed to be receiving this grace and immediately broadcasting it out into the world so that others can receive it yeah. um and then there's a whole bunch of people who are like that grace that ain't even real you follow the rules and if there's some grace coming towards you it's a lie probably yeah. and i think that comes with capitalism i think capitalism says there's no free lunch yeah. um you're paying for something you're paying for it somehow and capitalism is inconsistent with grace, like or incompatible—not inconsistent, but incompatible yeah. with grace. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and that's uh, it's it's interesting to me from my background that uh, so much of what I believe today is from things that uh, certain people told me to get into. Uh, not just you know read your Bible, but also you know uh, certain family members introduced me to punk music, mm. and uh, and all of those people who, who would think that I'm heretical for actually believing the messages of the things that I oh, right. read and experienced. Not just well, those are of the world, well, not, right? Not even just the punk music, though. Like, you know, it was an encouragement to actually read the Bible. Was what made me fall in love with, say, the Sermon on the Mount, which. Everyone will tell me. I don't know if you know about the Sermon on the Mount. You're supposed to disregard the Sermon on the yeah, Mount yeah. and follow the old law. Well, it's very, it's very interesting because I think, you know, with, um, with my denomination, it's actually called the Grace Brethren mm-hmm. and, and where the grace in Grace Brethren comes from and where the grace in a lot of church names comes from is, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, goodness, I just lost the word, um, dispensationalism. Oh. And dispensationalism is the idea, and I'm sure Church of God may not have used that word. Church of Christ is definitely Christ. into sort of like, yeah. where did the Jews go? Everywhere. Well, the idea the idea of dispensationalism is that uh, history is divided into ages. And uh, prior to the fall was a certain age. And mm-hmm. the, ages, the ages defined on how, how uh, redemption works. So prior to the fall is one age. And then the fall to Noah is another age. And then Noah to Moses. And then Moses is, is the age of the law. And that lasts up until Jesus. But it lasts up until the death of Jesus. And the death and resurrection signals the age of grace. Mm-hmm. That's what age we're in until the end times. Now all of this is tied into... Uh, it actually comes from uh, mid-19th century um, British preacher... But it's also where, like, the left-behind view of the rapture comes from. Yes. And it's especially helpful if you ignore the people on the cross with well, Jesus. Well, that's, that's one thing. Because the age of grace starts with the resurrection, it means that all of Jesus' teachings are part of, the, part of the age of the law. We don't Oof. have to pay attention to any of those. Oof. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's very interesting because... I, Especially, um, you know, looking... One thing I'm very interested in, I mentioned this on the podcast before, and I probably mentioned it in conversation with you before, is uh, in the history of ideas, particularly ideas that I was taught uh, as finite truth, Mm -hmm. as absolute truth, and the discovery that many of those ideas are less than a century old. Um, Yeah. uh, Which is interesting, too, but uh, but then looking at... uh, the division that caused Grace Brethren to become a denomination, and Protestant denominations are constantly splintering and coming back together. But, Why not? Yeah, but what caused Grace Brethren to come into uh, existence, and the reason it's called Grace Brethren, is that uh, the subsection of the Brethren Church they were at the time, uh, the conservative Brethren, were perfectly willing to only define their only creed was. Uh, the New Testament, or more specifically, the Sermon on the Mount. And, Not a bad place, yeah, honestly. Right. And the people who became the Grace Brethren wanted to 
uh, have a finite uh, statement of beliefs that every church had to agree to and wanted it to include dispensationalism. And that's, huh. that's where I came from. But it's kind of interesting that dispensationalism is not a term I learned from my church. Well, no. Like, a lot of these... I mean, is your church restorational? <sighs> not necessarily. Like, the church I grew up in was restorational. Like, this sort of like, okay, we need to return to the early church. Yeah. What that was about. What they experienced. And sort of recreate that now before the Roman Empire gets involved, yeah. but also keeping all the stuff against Catholicism. <laughs> uh, one thing, the, the Brethren are an Anabaptist group, and one thing that the Grace Brethren hold on to, to from the Anabaptists is uh, the community of believers, that everyone, everyone's the priesthood, basically. Oh. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily... Even women? No. <laughs> Oof. Uh, no, but that doesn't necessarily play out. I mean, they still have a pastor. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, and, and, and deacons are... Like, okay, I was going to say, do they have a... Yeah. Um, though the deacons are kind of... No dirt. <laughs> well, in a lot of ways, they're just the church board, the functional body that, right. that makes the LLC that is the church right. run. Um, but there's no... Deacon for tax reasons. There's no hierarchy uh, of the denomination. So the church congregation calls a pastor the church congregation ordains a pastor to a certain extent they do need uh, sort of a, a conference agreement to uh, uh, but the conference is is the local body maybe one state or half a state worth of churches um, and then they'll have a national body that's just sort of the facilitator of communication between the different bodies right at an annual meeting there they can Traditionally, hash out things. That's uh, fascinating. But uh, but more more in practice, the annual meeting is less about hashing out differences and more about uh, just reaffirming and and sort of speakers who don't rock the boat. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the Church of Christ um, very anti centralism. Yeah. And I ran into, so the, the two divisions in the Church of Christ are like the Church of Christ that's like conservative mm-hmm. and then the Church of Christ that believes you can use instruments when you sing <laughs> at the same time, yeah. which is a very like silly, it's, yeah. it's very stupid. But that's what they mean when they say liberal. It's, it's in addition to like, so I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America yeah. in the Columbus uh, division. I went on a Meals on Wheels uh, route with someone who was part of the Church of Christ, but the Church of Christ that sings. Avid Bernie Sanders supporter, lots of folks in his church um, were just explicitly socialist, very Sermon on the Mount. And so you go from an instrument, like, it's almost the slippery slope they, they, they say that will happen. Like, you'll start uh, worshipping with instruments while you sing and suddenly you'll be uh giving the poor money um (laughs) and and so it was it was shocking to me that to be like oh you're part of that tradition too turns out you're great um how are are those things related at all yeah um politically the grace brother in church 
is uh, essentially stereotypically Southern Baptist. Right. It is very, it is very hard for me walking into uh, a Southern Baptist church versus walking into a Grace Brethren church, or those those nebulous non-denominational churches that are Southern Baptist churches. Mm-hmm. They don't want to. They just don't want to say it. I mean, why would they say it? They're not related at all. Um, <laughs> because all of our pastors went to Southern Baptist seminaries. And, uh... I mean, can you um, give me a list of the things that they absolutely say that they totally believe? Just saying. Yeah. Um, now, my my dad, uh, who was the head pastor or youth pastor at most of the churches I went to growing up, mm-hmm. uh, did attend Liberty University. Uh, Seriously? Balls. Yeah. Um, oh, now he he got a history degree from Liberty University. We have not... <laughs> Sorry, no, it's it's okay. We have not actually talked about the specifics of what he learned in his history program at uh, at Liberty, though it is maybe fair to assume, uh, given his uh, within my lifetime uh, heavy interest in sort of the uh, the Ken Ham. Young Earth Creationism and, and Creation Institute and Answers in Genesis sort of thing. I want to say real quick that my dad wants you, would like everyone to know that plate tectonics is a theory. That is something uh, that in my experience, so so it's interesting too, uh, and we could, we could talk for another hour on that. Uh, but uh, like the Creation Institute, which I think is out in California, uh, in my experience, at least in the early 90s, was more of a hard line for things like that. And then Answers in Genesis came along and was all like, oh, no, that's silly. But also... Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Everything think, you just said. Well, they're, I mean, they're the group behind uh, the, the Ark Project in the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Have I told you that I've been to the Creation Museum? Uh, have you? I have. I went with a friend. It was surprisingly unsurprising to me. Yeah. Shocking to my friend. Oh, I'm sure. Who was, had, did not grow up. In a fundamentalist church. And then immediately came in. The opening exhibit is dragons. Yes. Right? Okay. So someone in a fundamentalist church is going to be like, right? Your leviathans, your... Uh, your large beast, behemoth, behemoth yeah. whatever. Your um, these are probably dinosaurs. Yeah. These are probably all this stuff. Dragon myths are probably related to that stuff. And he's like, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. We're talking about dragons yes. at the creation." Yes. And I'm like, "Oh yeah, no, we're talking about dragons. We're talking about dinosaurs. It's all fake." Um, or it's all absolutely what happened. Are there any unicorns at Creation Museum? Oh, I don't know that there were. Mm. But, you know, also... It might not be King James only, so... Well, you know, I mean, the new international virgin, uh, version, excuse me, uh, Freudian slip, uh, clearly has unicorns. Yeah. International version, uh, as far as my church was concerned, was a unicorn. <laughs> it should be treated thusly. Yeah. Ah, its own little rarity. Um, you actually you brought up young earth creationism while you're, we were watching it. In, oh, for sure. In the the lived inness of the of the world of the movie. 
Well, I mean, uh, people like the new Star Wars movies because sometimes there's this like, okay, you've got your there's a, a part of the ship has been hit with a blaster and there's there's carbon scarring on it or whatever. Um, but the Lord of the Rings films, they just were like, okay, we've got a shot, we've got a scene. Here's the set. Build everything in the set to completion, and then. It might not even make it into any shots, but if the camera veers that way, it'll have a perfect wooden uh, uh, pitcher that hobbits would use to pour water into, or whatever. And that's very much like the sort of argument I thought young earth creationism would be making when they would say, oh, there's dinosaurs. Okay, if you're going to make a complete earth, you would put the entire history of evolution into yeah. the geological structure. Not the case, in fact. Young Earth creationism is very much more about the dinosaurs there are a lie. Yeah. And, or not a lie, but, you know, it, it, you know. Again, it depends on, on what groups you're talking to. Right. There are certainly uh, groups who, at least at a time, and probably still today, um, absolutely do believe that fossils were planted by the devil. Right, but answers in Genesis. Yeah. You know, your your creation museum would say, the weight of the flood pressing down, you know, a flood that would cover the entire earth has to cover Everest. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about miles and miles of oceanic yeah. water pressure uh, forcing... Uh, I guess bones to turn to rocks, um, in in a short, very short time span. Well, you see, um, what the argument answers against it actually makes about the flood is that uh, somehow uh, these uh, the rock layers were the miracle of the flood uh, is actually that the the rock layers uh, still existed in layers because the idea. The idea that Answers in Genesis puts forth is that all rock layers are a remnant of the flood. That they're all laid down at the same time as the flood waters rose up and then receded. Right. It's very condensed. Yes. Um, the dinosaur parts, you know, only work because the pressure. I want to. I don't know if you know about this. And so now that we're on this string of conversation, it's a wonderful time. I want to throw it out. Um, there is creation science that is wholly devoted to uh, proving that trees can put down more than one ring in a year. I'm not familiar with and this. And that this is, can be a normal happening under the right weather conditions. And the, reasons that, the reason that this science has to exist is that the... Uh, what is the name of the actual variety? It's a sort of pine tree found out west in the western U.S. Uh, where they are a a cluster pine. Yes. So that different different trees can grow from the same root system, uh, and the oldest of those predates the flood, as far as young Earth creation timelines go. Yeah. Now also. Uh, the pyramids predate the flood as far as young Earth uh, 
timelines go. Uh, so you it's also... it's about a four thousand year, right? Yeah. yeah so yeah, I mean, to... if you're if you're stretching it you're, with your six thousand year, yeah, you also have to start arguing that uh, that the ancient Egyptians uh, exaggerated the length of their dynasties in order to appear more powerful, uh, which I guess. And the Israelis did not. <laughs> the ancient Hebrews. Uh, but yeah, so yes. it, it yeah. gets very it gets very interesting because there there are things that exist and we know exist uh, where where history written written history like a constant unbreaking written history tells I, us are older than the flood. I mean, it, it's a repeated denial of science, and I hate to fall into the sort of like scientism. Yeah. Um, I'm really not that. Um, but it does, like, it ends up being where you're just like, oh, gosh, like, do you not even know the basics? Like, and, and then you fall into, like, okay, here I am at the Grand Canyon with my dad. And my dad is having a conversation with a stranger about how I'm not sure that all of this happened all at once. Oof. <sighs> But but the Lord of the Rings feels like um, a young Earth. Yeah, the Lord of the Rings is a film made in two thousand one. It doesn't feel you're when you look at a scene. You don't think to yourself, "Ah, what a beautiful set." I mean, I might, or I might think, "What a beautiful giant rendering in CGI." Yeah. but I'm also thinking like there's. Crap in the background. And there's craftsmanship in the background. Right. Crap and craftsmanship. Yeah. Like, Saruman is in Orthak, and there's a candle that's burned down halfway and has leaked onto one of his scrolls. And he has been sorting through these scrolls, and some of them are broken, and some of them smell bad, yeah. no doubt. And they're all done it's all there right. and we see it and so we don't have to think to ourselves i wonder how new and shiny this set is like actually with star wars you think to yourself okay that scarring has been applied by yeah. cgi or you can tell everything's new and shiny but this one part and with lord of the rings you're like that might be just a really old piece of crap they just put in there it's not but it might be yeah i'm reminded uh I think it was uh, Kurosawa's uh, Redbeard, where he built a 16th century village, uh, but didn't just build a 16th century village for the sake of the film. An entire village, even though the, the uh, film focuses on the hospital uh, at the edge of town, uh, but made sure that they used period-appropriate tools to build the entire village. Wow. <laughs> I mean, so I think of um, when you get to Rohan in the second film, uh, they build the capital city of Rohan yeah. in a park in New Zealand, but they build the whole thing. Um, some of these buildings are in the aerial shots. They're real buildings, but they have to be made so that they can be immediately torn down right. because it's a national park. And torn down to a point where it was like they were never there. Right. Ideally. Ideally. <laughs> Edoras. Yeah. You know, Edoras has this long ancient history with wood carvings in the wall. 
anyways, we're gonna knock it down, and it's gonna be gone, and it, it'll be never. It'll never have been there. Yeah. Um, you brought up that uh, that one thing uh, Peter Jackson says about the uh, scenes where the trees are being pulled down is that he felt he felt that Tolkien would appreciate that because Tolkien that the trees were fake. Tolkien would appreciate because Tolkien wouldn't want real 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 trees destroyed for such frivolous reasons. Right. Uh, and as you said, those trees are no doubt made out of polyurethane. Or... Right. It's this, like, all the stuff that Weta Workshops makes is made out of polyurethane or polystyrene, or all this stuff that, like, either will never dis- decompose or never disappear, or is just clearly bad. It's made out of oil or stuff like that, and that it would have been far better for them to have just torn down trees. Not that that would have been yeah. possible. Um, it's interesting... Maybe the film the film is cursorily. It has the same themes as the book, but it, it moves through things more quickly. So, in the book, or as much as in the movie, the Shire is idyllic, mm-hmm. and the Shire is perfect in so many ways. And it's, oh yeah, it's uh, it's a farming community, right. but it, it is a community. And they have, you know, community-wide celebrations. Um, right. But it's uh, it's just farmers. And obviously, true to the book and true to the film, uh, industry is a major bad in in both. Right. Uh, and the Orukai and, and Soromon's manufacturing... Wheels and gears. Wheels and gears. Um, the manufacturing is bad, and, and the trees are good. Um, right. Even though some of those trees take a while to act, but <laughs> they uh, do. They take several films. <laughs> but uh, it's almost you know it's not quite uh, it's not quite Jeffersonian's uh, you know Thomas Jefferson's idea of perfect freedom was uh, was individual farmers, right? Everybody being everybody having their own farm, um, fully stocked with the with the non human labor that. Uh, that they would need to right. run that farm, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, this is still this is farming in community, which is nice. But still, it is not it is not the world's idea of heaven. Heaven in the Lord of the Rings is still a distant other place. Right, it's like the ocean. It's beyond the Shire. You have to go through the Shire to get there. You have to go to the Great Havens and off on to Arda. Like, you have to go, leave Arda, or you have to leave Middle-earth and go back to Valinor. Yeah. And when we look at the Shire, we are created... Or when we look at the Shire, we are given a view of, like, what it could be like for us to really just enjoy our lives. There's yeah. no large... Um, societal problems there's not even a government (laughs) there's like it's just a bunch of people connecting to each other and it's so idyllic that it's um i mean it's a lie right it's like it can never be like that in america it can never be like that except in some sort of community that you create that exists outside of the normal 
functioning of society. You have to exist outside of money. Like, nobody pays anybody at the bar. People just leave the bar. They drink, and then they leave the bar. Right. Like, no, there's no no money in any of this stuff. Um, but people farm, they till, they grow things because it feels good to grow things. Yeah. They talk to their neighbors. They throw each other parties. Um, they dig holes in the ground to make their houses. And there's no leaking. And so everything about it is sort of like idealized, which is why in the books, you know, there has to be the scoring of the Shire. The Shire has to catch on fire and burn so that the importance of its renewal is obvious. That we have to return to that. And obviously in the films, it has to never go away so that our characters can return to it. But some of our characters are so scarred that they can never return to it. Like, it's not even... Even that is not rest for our ring bearers, our people who have um, fought against Sauron their whole lives, or at least borne this one ring. They have to go off to Valinor, where even, like, caring about other people is not what it was where you're a little more connected with the sort of cosmic vision of how harmony exists harmony in hobbiton seems pure and wonderful but in even in the books there's like there's some people who suck um some of bilbo's relatives don't like him there's drama it's real and it's there and you still have to leave that. You can't even have a world where everything's perfect. Everyone just gives each other crops. Yeah. Everyone, you know. You also have these punk kids who are stealing crops. But, you know, even those kids are like, ah, those kids. Yeah. And then in the end, it's fine. Yeah. Thinking about then, uh, you know, Tolkien, Tolkien was a Christian. And, and it's clear that. Christian theology has a lot of play within the Lord of the Rings yes. uh, story. Uh, so if you can make a lot of different arguments for what Eden is within the history of Middle-earth. Yes. But if the Shire is Eden and the uh, the scouring of the Shire, or the, or the, I can't remember the actual Right, right, yeah, yeah. What's the actual term in the book? Scoring, Scoring? I guess. Okay. Um, If that is, is, you know, the the evil of industry Mm. uh, coming to the Shire finally and burning things down, and then the Shire's restored, a new Eden, Mm. a new heaven, a new earth, uh, it has to pass away in order for the new one to come. Right, uh, but uh, but still, that renewal is the work of the hobbits. Right, they get back together, and Sam specifically, Sam Sam, specifically. Sam gets some special seeds from Galadriel to grow the trees that grow in Lothlorien. Yeah, to make it it not just the same Eden that it was a new Eden, right. um, and. You know, you're, for your elves, Eden is Valinor. Yeah. They've already forsaken what's happening and come to Middle-earth to do their new thing. 
Beleriand has been flooded because of their hubris, and then they're stuck with Middle-earth. And now, only through their sailing away can they get back to Valinor. Yeah. Sail away, sail away, sail away. Uh, little, little Enya joke. Little Enya joke. You watched this when you were freshman in high school. Yeah. When it, when it first came out, which was December 2001. Uh, so well, it comes out in, like, two months after 9-11. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, I I don't math, Adam. I'm so mad at you. <laughs> I was going to say I was going to say uh, a month and a half because I thought September was directly before December for a second until until you said it wrong. I didn't actually think about what it really was. Um, the Gregorian calendar is a construct. <laughs> I'd like to just point that out. I saw this in theaters when it came out. Yeah. I do not. I have no correlation in my mind between September 11th and a movie I watched in December. I don't, I don't directly, right? In retrospect, it's sort of like, okay, here I am at the cusp of adulthood, I guess, um, witnessing the... The turning point in American history in the modern era where we're attacked. We're the good guys. Bad guys attack us. And they're bad. And it's clear, you know, we need to go to war or we need to do whatever it is because we're good and they're bad. They hate our freedoms. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to watch... A film like The Lord of the Rings is very much like, right, everybody knows who's good, everybody knows who's bad. It's all very clear. I'm a freshman in high school. I can quite tell who's good and evil, thank you very much. Um, But, of course, life, you know, in the preceding years, or in the the following years, we, we all find out, oh... It's a little more complicated than that. And not only that, it turns out um, it's not just the people who are the enemy of the state who are a little more complicated. It's the people who are the enemy of white people um, or the enemy of your local government who are not really the enemy. They've got grievances or they've been mistreated or whatever it is, things aren't black and white, and The Lord of the Rings doesn't make sense with that sort of uh, assessment of the world, which is why it's also comforting, because it's sort of like, okay, we know who's bad and who's good, and we all would like to think, I know who's bad and how I would treat the person who's bad. And Lord of the Rings says you kill them. Or it says, um, you just have to persevere against that thing until the end. Right. It's not necessarily even... You're not looking to wipe everything out. And the destruction of Sauron isn't about stabbing him in the heart again. Destruction of Sauron is uh, part and parcel to destruction of the ring. Mm -hmm. So it's about... 
It's about our, our plucky young heroes surviving long enough. Um, and they do kill when they have to, even even Frodo and Sam kill yes. when they have to. Absolutely. I, I think particularly in Return of the King, the, the spider mm-hmm. uh, in Mordor. Um, I can't think of any other instances necessarily of them specifically doing so, but there is at least that moment. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's them with their wiles and, and just, you know... Yeah, they don't kill Gollum. Right. Gollum, who will clearly kill them to take the ring. Right. Who will take the ring and in all of humanity. Um, They don't kill him. Right. Another thing, you know, you talked about the Shire not really having any government. I say not really, but just flat out not having any government. It it seems to maybe in the books, but it's not even something that resembles, you know, ours. Um. And it's very clear uh, within the within the narrative that uh, seeking power is what's evil. Yes. Uh, so, in as much as the Shire is a uh, agricultural commune, um, yes, an anarchist commune. Yeah. 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 An anarchist commune. Um, as long as no one is seeking to establish a hierarchy, they are still idyllic. Right. Yeah. Um, all our all our characters who seek power are corrupted by it. Aragorn, our eventual king, says, you know, I've never wanted it. Yeah. You know, he's never wanted it. What a guy. He eventually is persuaded to take it. He sure is. <laughs> and takes it with the sword. But he never wanted it. So. He never wanted it. No. Um, but yeah, and you know, a few of the of the already more powerful characters are tempted toward that power. Right. Um, and uh, particularly in the first movie, um, we, get, uh, we get Gandalf. And it's always it's always Frodo thinking he's doing the right thing by by offering up. The Here it is. Would you like it? Please just take it from me. Yeah, because he doesn't want it, right. which is the only reason he takes it all the way to the end. Right. Uh, Gandalf knows what he would do with it if he got it. Right. Galadriel would become a powerful queen. Right. We see what she would do with it. She, she, she we see it. We see it. We see her change. Um, was a really great effect too. It's pretty good. So, yeah, uh, there are moments in the film where the CG does does not hold up. You know, it's two thousand one. You look at Harry Potter in the same. You look at Harry Potter with the orc in the bathroom scene, and you think, yeah. you know what, you know what, Lord of the Rings didn't do so bad. Yeah, but yeah, you, know, you talked you talked about how uh, how with the film. We don't know if Gladriel's bad or not until, well, after we meet her. Yes. Uh, but you had already pointed out, you know, the most powerful wizard in this universe has been corrupted. The most powerful king in this universe will be revealed to have been corrupted. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, the most powerful elf, <laughs> maybe she has been corrupted right. by him, you know, when we're first introduced. It's confusing because I, you know, we're, in the books we have no 
uh, iffiness right. about Galadriel. Galadriel's an elf. She's fine. She's great. Peter Jackson says, okay, well, the people in power we actually probably need to be a little unsure about. Right, right. And that's interesting that that is something Jackson introduces to it. And, you know, it's an active choice on his part. Um, yeah, for I, I think for the best. Yeah. There is... Textually, there are arguments to be made that, that the Shire really is this, this anarchist-leaning agricultural commune, anarcho-primitivist. Well, and, and certainly all the elf societies absolutely are that. Um, all the elf societies are, are heaven on earth. Uh, maybe the exception of the wood elves and the hobbit, but... You know, spiders get in the way of a lot of things. <laughs> um... But uh, I don't know that you'd argue. I don't think Tolkien would identify as an anarchist in any no. major way. I mean, it, it's a little confusing. I mean, I think what's interesting now is that I talk to a lot of people about what they, how they would like the world to be, and the things that they describe. I'm like, that's just so you know. That's socialism. And then they're like, what? No. Uh, no, me? <laughs> and it, it's it's like, no, you've been in capitalism so long, you know the problems. And then the solutions that you envision are presented to you by socialism and or anarchism or whatever, um, where it's this uh, non-authoritarian structure and people are like, no, I'm not like that because there's the stigma behind that. But also because those things are never allowed to thrive. Right. One thing that fantasy always is weird about is races. Oops. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the, the elves are their own race, the men are their own race, the hobbits are their own race, the wizards are their own race. There's not a lot of them left, but they are no. their own race. Um, and in that regard it's and this is true to the books too it is unfortunate as you already said that the, the dark skinned people are all bad it's troubling the dark skinned races are all bad and the, uh, the dark skinned races happen to come from the south and the east uh, oof bad. <laughs> um, yeah uh, Tolkien um <laughs> But they are they are also other to the point of non-humanity. Um, yeah, I mean, they're is, like orcs. Right. It's its own badness. Um, and the orcs... Are the orcs corrupted elves? Or am I confusing them with something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and Saruman talks about this. Yeah. He's like, they were, they were elves that were corrupted, and um, in... And I think the two towers, there's a scene where um, what looks like an Indian man is shot off of, uh, shot by arrows off of an oliphant, which I don't know if you know, that means elephant. Um, <laughs> and he falls to the ground and Faramir is like, how is he so different from me? That's about the only acknowledgement we get that like, yeah. the brown people aren't different. Um, but it's not there. It's not that they keep killing them. Um, and 
and so it's, it is it's very sad that it's not like there's the redemption arc for these people who are uh, essentially bamboozled right. by Sauron right there is that it's not just non-human-esque races that are corrupted there are men who who align with Sauron to openly align not just you know we get the the back and forthness of some of the the, the Gondor people but we have we have groups of men who have actively and they're fighting in those big battles right um it's interesting uh, I'm sure we I'm sure you and I have talked about this but uh come back around to uh, Tolstoy's The Kingdom of God is Within You um and he talks about uh how uh everything's defined by self-interest and then by family interest and then by community interest and slowly that's expanding and, and Tolstoy thinks that the only way to get get above country interest to, to world interest is if there's a species-wide existential threat he doesn't exactly use those words but that's what right. it means uh, and I don't mean necessarily something extraterrestrial and I don't think that Tolstoy even had a concept of something extraterrestrial like that uh, but as it turns out, right now we're facing about five uh, species-wide ex- existential events. Uh, yeah, and uh, and it and it also turns out that that doesn't actually make people stop stop uh, their self-interest and stop. Uh... I mean, so like, <laughs> and then like you have people like Deleuze, um, who are Deleuze's Deleuze is like, um, okay, so the left, the left ideally starts at the fringes like the person you are the most worried worried about is the person you are not the nearest to and that's a that is a uh narrative flip because normally it's like literally your nuclear family your larger family your community your society your country and then the world and deliz is saying no um the left the genius is the left, maybe not the genius, but the left focuses on the periphery first. Whoever is the most downtrodden, whoever is the least of you, is who you are, is the reflection of this, the health of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, to that degree, Tolkien fails. Yeah. Tolkien's interested in hierarchy, which is a conservative, right. a a right-facing value. The king comes out in the end. Yeah. The rightful king. Um, and but, the rightful king who unifies everyone under him. Turns out, yeah, yeah but it, in the left, the left would say, um, yes, it's great that the king unifies, but who does he not serve? We need to interest the interest needs to focus on them too, and I think Tolkien would say a good king focuses there first. Yeah. Um. But I don't know if we get that story. I don't know that the uh, the morality of Middle Earth can offer redemption to say the Urukai. No, and it is explicitly against that. Yeah. Right, like the Middle Earth narrative has clear evil people, and that and that gets back to our sort of night like nine eleven mentality of like these people are evil. It's absolute. Like that's what's nice is 
That's why it's comforting. If you grow up fundamentalist and you're like, the world out there is evil, you have to create almost your own world. Like, people in evangelical communities create their own music, their own scenes, their own concerts, their own lifestyles, their own living arrangements. Um, you, it, you run into places like Xenos on campus who have every single day there's an event that you can attend. There's a, there's a house that you can live in with only other Christians. And so you create a world apart. Yeah. Um, and rather than figuring out what the world is really like, and so there's no, the real world conflict is how do I integrate my black and white upbringing with the world that is gray? How do I figure out how to invite everyone to the table when I'm a little concerned about doing that? Well, and Tolkien doesn't give us that answer. No, he he says. I mean, again, the comfort is all these people are acting as we would like to act, where we confronted with pure evil. Right. Like we all would like to think of ourselves as I'm acting because I'm in conflict with the worst, um, and it needs to be canceled. And I. I feel like Tolkien doesn't offer us a solution where we can say, okay, so how do we turn orcs good? It's never, it's never talked about. Um, orcs are bad. There's nothing good about them. They're inherently evil. They're corrupted by this ring or by Sauron or whatever it is. And it's incorrupt or it's, um, there's no redemption for that. And that's, very sad but it's also i think something that we're trying to grapple with in a sort of like like who is okay now with what trump is doing who is okay with putting children in camps where they don't have uh basic hygiene allowed even um and we have to say okay how is this related to me? How, am I am I facing the purest of evil? Or am I facing, like, kind of a gray area? Like, I feel like some people think that, oh, okay, someone face down in a river, that's kind of a gray area. And for me, it's definitely not. Right. Um, but, like, Tolkien doesn't provide those answers. And... That's where the comfort comes from. You don't have to encounter anything that's a little in between. You get Gollum. And Gollum, in the end, is so corrupted that he saves us all by being the worst forever. (laughs) That's uh, the way it's delivered in the the animated Return of the King, where, where Gollum bites the ring off and falls into Mount Doom. And Frodo just goes, Gollum has completed our quest. And they walk <laughs> away. <laughs> thank God. Uh, I mean, thank Eru. <laughs> thank Iluvatar. It's a pretty complicated mythology. <laughs> you know, it's a little silly sometimes. Yeah. I'd have to consult my Stephen Colbert book of complete uh, <laughs> yes. 
um, Middle Earth knowledge. Uh, the Hobbit was first published 30s? in 37. Okay. Well, because it's post, yeah. I mean, World War One is the war he experiences and starts writing it in. So that makes sense, at least. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, Fellowship published 54. So 54? Yeah. Oof. Uh, okay. So, okay. Well. All the more reason to sort of focus in on that black and white thinking, like well, you're yeah. post two world wars. Well, yeah. Well, The Hobbit also reflects a, a grayer world, too, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, what is it? The big battle at the end is five armies or uh, battle of the five armies. The battle of three films. <laughs> I uh, I did not watch all of the filmed version of the Hobbit live action. Movie you know, movie. it's not something you need to ever feel bad about. I'm entirely sure that I watched the second one, but I know for certain I didn't watch the third. I've watched all three of them, and I can clearly say that technically I watched three films. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Is that the most you can say about them? I mean, the most good I can say about them. Yeah. Um, so, it's... That battle is ultimately over resources. A rock. A rock. And, rock. and uh, what's, what's, what's beautiful about that, uh, that battle is that most of it uh, is when Bilbo is asleep because he's been knocked unconscious... And because he's our main character, we do not experience right. it, which is the flaw of the third film, which wherein we experience all of it and more. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, um, but that's a you know that's that's interesting in that you know Tolkien was in World War One. I. I obviously post World War Two, we have a much more black and white yes. view of giant wars uh, because we have. In ultimate evil, and you know, of course, right. that we retain to this day. Right, it turns out we never, never actually vanquished that one. Uh, rises up every generation. It's much more, much more like Zelda than anything else. Uh, right. Um, just uh, Neo Ganondorfs. Slightly different forms, just just pops back up. Um, so to the, to that extent, certainly in British popular history um world war ii is very black and white in american <gasps> popular history world war ii is very black and white uh it is interesting to see our one true king uh decry the greatest power in the universe uh in order to uh to win the battle fair and square uh i guess but but i mean was british power ever really the, the greatest power <laughs> I mean, in the end where, britain wins but, yeah, but it where, had a little help where i balance that against is that churchill definitely would have taken the ring churchill. oh yes yes i mean churchill is not our aragorn here no, no. um the common man i guess is is aragorn yeah. like aragorn's like aragorn's like the king like, what would happen if someone in the royal family was kicked out, and then the rest of the royal family was bombed, and then they were like, I guess he's king, but he's been you're, living, he has a cockney accent, and we can't deal with you're it. You're actually kind of describing the plot of King Ralph. I feel like uh, if, if we try to, if we try to one-for-one one, uh, 
World War Two under the Lord of the Rings. We're going to hit some big problems pretty quick. Right. It says, it says things that I hope Tolkien didn't believe about England, but he probably did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, particularly if the, if the hobbits themselves are England. Well, but I feel I feel like um, maybe they're a little more the English uh, proletariat. Yeah. Um, you're you're. Uh, people of Rohan are your sort of mythical past. Your Gondor is your idyllic future. Mm-hmm. Who who you want England to be? Um, Which is a monarchy, but it but it but not bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's a monarchy, but it's not, it's a good monarchy. It's not you know. I will say the the kingdom of Gondor hasn't seemed to like take over like. The brown people of Harad or South Harad, like they're not looking for expansion as much as they they want homeostasis. They want things to make sense and to to um, be balanced, yeah. which is why it's not like England in any way. Like England would be like, how do we take over everything ever? entirety of middle earth but also if we're calling it middle earth there's that means there's an upper and lower earth and and we've got boats let's get those boats going <laughs> and the uh, the british sail to the skies um something you said earlier reminded me uh, jason d bradley something recently that i uh, i found very interesting uh most christians don't even have actual enemies right now they just think they they struggle to love their mildly inconvenience mild inconveniences. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, but also, I teach an anti racism class at a Mennonite church, uh, and I, I'm sure I've talked about that on Cinema Credo before. Uh, and one of the one of the things I framed this past year's class around we were t- we were talking about uh, Ibram X Kendi's book. Stamped from the beginning, a history of racist ideas in America is what he subtitles it, and it starts pre-America, Enlightenment Europe, and even even back to Plato for a little bit, um, and talks about the history of of racism and uh, and his his framing is that you know, racism is always racist ideas. We get this, you know, we have this common misconception that racist ideas uh, exist and then people who believe them are racist and racists get together and make racist laws. Uh, but what he argues is that historically what happens is there is a self-interested law, financial or social policy, to keep somebody in power. And then the smartest minds of a generation come together to justify that self-interest policy and that stems the racist ideas. That sounds much more plausible. Right. I mean, yeah. any sort of um, morally questionable belief you hold, generally, when you justify it, it's after the fact. Right. right. Um, so he's, he's combating another, another common misconception in the idea that, that racists are ignorant. 
And that's one thing he's trying to say, too, that racist ideas stem from very smart people, some of the yes. smartest people. Yes. Uh, some of the people you would call the architects of the Enlightenment. It, what's hard of, about current conversations about racism is the implication that nobody's malicious about this. They just have the wrong logic behind it. Well, one thing the book mentions on, on line with what you just said, you know, we talk about uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, who points out, you know, Du Bois started life in a very uh, uplift, uplift suasion, is the, the term that was used, but with this idea that uh, if, if black people could assimilate well enough and be good enough, some amount of black people, then white people would decide, well, they're not all subhuman, so, so right. all of them aren't subhuman. Right. Uh, and that's an idea that never some, worked. Some respectability right. politics. Respectability. And, and uh, Du Bois um, eventually realized that wasn't working. Uh, and, you know, was, he bumped heads with people like say, uh, Booker T. Washington. But Washington was kind of on the, uh, the educationist key point. And, you know, if people, if white, if the white society really understood what it was like to be a black person, they, their opinions would change. And so Which I think is true if people really understood. Well, like, well I think what Du Bois came back with later in life, um, as he became more communist, actually, um, was they know. They've got eyes. I mean, but I think the thing is that they don't. Yeah. Like, I think um, the visceral experience is inaccessible. That, like, um, you can go through the worst part of your life ever and tell someone about it, and they can't feel what it's like. Right. And that's fair. And so I think that the the imagination that is required to understand that a person is having a, a dramatically different or traumatic experience of the world you're living in is has historically been inaccessible to white people, or at least been something that they absolutely choose to reject, even the possibility of thinking about um, I'm reminded, I have a friend from the internet. His name is Ben. He's from Canada. Um, sure. <laughs> that's, that's what I set up for. So I'm good. Uh, yeah, but um, we were both members of the Five Iron Frenzy message board. Uh, Five Iron Frenzy, the Christian ska band uh, that I joined when I was, I think, 14. Unlike Real Big Fish, the atheist ska yes, band. Yes, the atheists. They weren't really an atheist. You no. Know. They were atheists in a band. It's, right. it's, a, it's a fine line. Right, yes. Uh, no. Um, uh, but then Ben at one point said, you know, that the reason he was an atheist is that he believed that if Christians really believed that hell was real, they would stop at nothing to convert everyone. And since he didn't see them converting everyone, Obviously, it wasn't real to them, so why should it be real to him? And that's, uh, I only remember that now, because in the last week, I ran across someone making a similar argument. They, 
uh, fairly conservative person saying that if climate change were real, then the more liberal cities would be passing, like, San Francisco would be building a seawall, or... Yeah, I mean, I guess you run into, like, California, though, very different emission laws. Right, (laughs) right. And that's that's also true. So so then from there, where I step is what's going on at our border and these camps that are uh, inadequately funded, uh, purposefully. Well, so, not inadequately funded, inadequ- inadequately stocked. Inadequately stocked. They're high, very well funded. Yes. Um, and that's, that's really, and, and even better funded as of yesterday. They're they're well funded compared to say yeah. your experience at the the Radisson. Right. right. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't matter what the funding is because the situation will still exist as it exists. Because it's not about funding. It's not about having. It's not even. They probably have the blankets and the soap, right? Right. <laughs> they're probably warehouse somewhere. People they're literally probably, send it. Right. To ice and ice rejects it. Yeah, it's not. It's the cruelty is the point. Um, but also, there are people who just won't believe that that's happening. That yeah, uh, the reports of it are lies. Uh, you know, to get back to get back into conservative Christianity, uh, James Dobson is still alive, apparently. Uh, why would why would he die? Focus on the families, Dr. James Dobson, and he just this week sent out an email in his weekly emails, I'm sure, uh, where uh, representatives of the government invited him to the border, and he talks about the refugees and he puts the refugees in quotes, and uh, and he talks about you know these. Uh, Dangerous, unaccompanied minors, and, and these immigrants with no marketable skills who are coming here oh. to, to change, to change our society, to change our culture, irre, irrevocably change our culture from what we know. And it's all—I don't even know if James Dobson necessarily recognizes it as all white supremacist dog whistles, but that's all it is, <laughs> just over and over again. And I have well-meaning relatives who are posting this stuff that in good faith. But I read it and I say, it doesn't even matter if what he says is true because the language he uses is using well, and it's, it false. And it's, again, it's that black and white. Right. right? You know, it's, I mean, what's nice is the refugees in Lord of the Rings, they're accepted because they're all the same. They're just the same sort of people. Right. We don't experience refugees from um, Haradrim in Lord of the Rings. Right. There is only the bad guys. They're going out to fight. They're fighting for Sauron. Um, and but presumably those bad guys have families. But Tolkien's not we, interested. He's in not. That. No. It's it's like um, it's like. For Tolkien, he is not uh, a woke bay. You know, he's not writing in a time where you think about... Like, I mean, he's literally writing in the time of Churchill. Uh, uh, a heroic racist. Um, who, beloved by millions. Um, 
you know, who very much would be fine if everyone in India died. Um, so he's not thinking, you know, he's not coming from a perspective of uh, people who are without power are not our enemy. And when we encounter refugees, we shouldn't be thinking, oh, wow, they have so much power over me. They're refugees. They have nothing. And and for you to be so, um, not you, but like for people to be so ready to play the victim of people who have no power is a sort of condition, is a sort of... uh, play acting that Christians have been playing for a very long time. Not all Christians, obviously. Um, But evangelical Christians, especially who feel the loss of their, uh, uh, their vice grip on what happens in culture. It's reaction to a, to a loss of social power. It's a loss of power. Um, it's not that these people aren't losing power. They recognize that they're losing power and they're fighting against it. But they should not have that power and they will not accept that. Um, and they won't accept that someone who has less power than them uh, should be given some of their power. Right. And Tolkien has no interest in that. Right. Tolkien says... Um, there are no powerless people almost it's almost like like even the weakest hobbit can rise up and stop Sauron Um, I don't really see a lot of bootstrapping in Tolkien necessarily Um, but there's certainly not a recognition of whatever the opposite of that is right Right. and you know again Tolkien himself would, would argue that none of that's what's interested, what, what he's interested in writing. Well, he's interested in rewriting, in creating a mythology for England that right. it lacks. Right. Icelandic traditions, um, your Norse traditions have these mythos. Your Beowulf, your Kalevala. Um, and he wants that for England. And, and you know, Kalevala and Beowulf are not woke. So we can't look to Tolkien to recreate that, but we also can't um, look at 2001 Peter Jackson's The Fellowship of the Ring as adapted by a white New Zealander um, as removed. Right. It's in Tolkien's vein in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, I will say Tolkien... Uh, Tolkien's solution to Two Riddles from Macbeth, I think, is more fulfilling than the ones actually in Macbeth. The uh, the forest come to life. I'm not familiar. Um, so in Macbeth, uh, he Macbeth is is prophesized to die when the forest of whatever marches, and that is where Tolkien's idea for the Ents comes from. Right. Whereas in Macbeth, it's an army that put on some camouflage get him so they're covered in tree limbs when they, mm-hmm. when they march uh, and then the uh, no man of woman born mm-hmm. can kill Macbeth and uh, and in Macbeth uh, 
Shakespeare's solution is a guy who was born out of a cesarean section and, and therefore was not, Good one. not a woman born. And, and Tolkien's answer is uh, maybe just a lady. Just a, just a lady. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are certainly some... We can give him credit, I guess. <laughs> I guess. A little bit of credit there. Um, I, like, you know, so to swing it back to sort of where we started, and, and maybe it's time to, to pull it to a close. Um, when he's on, he's very good. Yes. Uh, when he's when he's approaching, you know, it's that, that close, but you're not quite grasping it. Maybe believe the things you're saying. Maybe believe the idea, the ideals you're presenting. Yeah. And apply them universally um, instead of still believing there are dark races that are. Uh, and it gets back to hierarchy, I think. Yeah, like I think he's it still. Does get back to, to hierarchy. Um, but then you know, there's still Sam is the hero of the trilogy. In... Yeah. Um, that's a hard, (sighs) it's hard for me to come down and say fully yes on that because with an ensemble like there is, without any one of them, it all falls apart. Um, Sam has certainly the, the stoutest of hearts. And carries sometimes literally uh, the story to the end. Yeah. Um, and is, I get, you know, and Tolkien does not do him any favors. He's kind of dumb in the books uh, and definitely a little darker than Frodo yeah. uh, in description. Um, but I don't know that Tolkien gives him that recognition that Peter Jackson does. Maybe. Peter Jackson, I think, is very much on the, um, without, like, at the end of, like, The Two Towers, there's this meta conversation about the stories that will be told about this afterwards, and Frodo has to be like, but tell me, oh, but I want the one about Sam. You know, I don't know that that's the story that Tolkien told. I think that's fair. It's also interesting to talk about adaptations. Uh, We're definitely getting... Our director's uh, interpretation of Tolkien. Yeah, and so often you get the director's interpretation. That's actually one thing that really impressed me about uh, Kurosawa's version of uh, *The Idiot*, which is transposed into current day to, to production in Japan. Hmm. Um, but it really accurately presents *The Idiot* as written and not an interpretation of *The Idiot*. Um, wow. Is it is it during that uh, that conversation at the end of Two Towers uh, where uh, where Sam says there is some good in the world and worth fighting for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that line. Yeah, it's that's what's really hard um, for me. It's hard to know that. Yeah. Like I feel like in the darkest places of my life, I've been keenly aware of the. Um, cyclical nature or just merely unending nature of how bad things are about how injustice is not just 
um, moments of time where someone was a jerk, how it's a like, it's a structure by which generations and generations and generations of people will be destroyed. And it's hard for me not to fall into the villain's ideal of the, the complete destruction as the only answer. There's a, there's a Facebook group called nuclear Dharma and nuclear Dharma posits that, um, the only way for people not to re-enter samsara, to not continue the cyclical nature of life, is by destroying all life uh, through a nuclear, um, a nuclear holocaust, a worldwide nuclear holocaust. Because then no one can re- be reborn as anything, and that's the end of samsara. <laughs> and what's the worst part about that is part of me is like, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah but mostly because of things like when i see a photo of a father face down in the river with his daughter Mm. i can never unsee that and i can never as a father of a daughter not feel like the world if it's not for this guy it's definitely not for me um so what am, what am I bringing a child into this world for? And you know who doesn't give that answer is Tolkien. Tolkien does not. He's going to bring it back, right? Um, uh, you know, it's... People like me. White liberals. Liberal. I'm a leftist. How dare you? Uh, no, it's... Uh, it's... It's Kurt to... Uh, Quote MLK, um, but you know the, the the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. It's long, but it bends toward justice. You know, it's, it's something that gets thrown out. Uh, but I don't know if I believe it. Well, it, you it, know, it only bends toward justice if we apply weight. Right. right. Like. So we've got to keep applying the weight, I suppose, and that's hard. That's yeah, and it's hard to think like okay. What's it like a thousand years? Is our, are our efforts now worth it for a thousand years from now? Right. Unknown. Even on a smaller scale, you know, that's, uh, I worked at a hotel for seven years. And there were never any serious talks of unionizing. But one thing that, that did come up when we talked about it is that unionizing a hotel is hard work because of the turnover. Because yes. it's there long enough to make that difference. You're still going to be willing to do the work. Even if it means uh, it's, you know, that... It's hard to tell people the work you do will not benefit you. Right. It's hard to get people to agree to do it when they don't think it's going to benefit them. But ultimately, and it's even hard when it's like it will benefit your children. Like it's hard for me to say um, that the work, like if I want to protest something that may impact the climate, let's say, um, is it going to make enough of a difference that my child will have a different life, or that her children will have a different life? I don't know. And that not knowing is almost enough to not do something. 
which is very sad, right? It's very sad. Um, but it's also like I can barely function in this society without my mental health completely taking over who I am. And to then say, well, put all that energy into making the world a better place. I don't know that I have it to spare. I mentioned the class I teach, and, uh, and the reason I actually initially brought that up, I didn't even get to. Um, one of the framings I used this year was uh, based on a writer named Walter Wink's interpretations of the powers and principalities in, uh, in that section from Paul's writing. St. Paul in the New Testament, Christian scriptures. Um, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the powers, it's the rulers, the authorities of this dark world. Um, and Wink argued that, that those powers are hierarchy, or unjust hierarchy. Yeah. It's what 90% of his writing is devoted to. And there's, there's one aspect of seeing that as spiritual warfare that if demons are real, then the demon of hierarchy. Yes. It's the most powerful one. Yes. Um, and anything that works against that is the good in the world. It's, it's the positive force is God. God is justice, uh, but real shalom, justice, peace and justice as one. So there's that aspect of it, but also this view that, that those, those are spiritual forces and they're so their timelines are beyond my life right right and hierarchies hierarchy as as a force of evil is way beyond my life because it started hundreds if not thousands of years ago i think i i was thinking recently um i'm working i'm shelving books at the library yeah. and i'm thinking to myself was it bad that the romanovs were murdered because there was a chance that someone would then say, these are the rightful heirs, we need to restore them. Yeah. And the only way to eliminate that possibility is to kill children. Yeah. That's terrible. Obviously, we all know that that's wrong and bad and terrible. But from the perspective of power and, and the amount of terribleness that could come from them coming into power... Um, it's very confusing. It's one of those, do you kill Hitler as a baby questions, um, which I'm not a fan of because, I, you know, for me, it's like you don't kill Hitler as a baby. There are, uh, there are other things you can do. Yes. Right? Why don't you be Hitler's dad for a few years, please? Try to make a better Hitler. Um, there's another thing Paul writes, and I can't remember the exact reference to this either, but it's... Uh, it says, I planted the seed, Apollo watered it, but God made it grow. And, and part of that's about you know, the letting go of, of personal yeah. responsibility within a thing. And, and you know, even, even your, uh, your belief, not that you have to be responsible for a thing, but that you were responsible for a thing. Well, a, a sort of like, um, you have to do the work and then maybe you can't claim the credit. Or, um, even more so, you have to do the work and you have to not be invested as to whether it works, except to the degree that it helps you make something else work in the future. You learn from your mistakes, sure, 
but you can't necessarily claim credit yeah. for the thing. And that's actually, I will get back to a sort of Christian problem. The Christian problem of everything that you do that's wrong is your fault. And everything that you do that's right is God's, uh, per, you know, did good. And so I'm a little skeptical of yeah. um, things are beyond your control and beyond your doing. Um, but certainly they are the long, uh, the long tail of history is inaccessible to um, 99.999% of humans. Right. Right. We're not at the end of the road. Right. There's still further to go. And there are new ideas. And there are ideas of, of justice that you and I cannot dream of. I hope so. I, you know, I really hope that. That's one thing. One thing when people, when people say... It's always a, a critique of socialist or communist ideas where they say capitalism has raised more people out of poverty than any other idea of history. Well, so did feudalism in its time. So. Yeah, and so did socialism. <laughs> like, like you look at what what Russia was like yeah. in feudalism, and then in socialism, people are better off. Certainly the rich are far worse off. Right. And it turns out that's actually okay. That's and, actually... Another, uh, in the closing chapters of Sam from the Beginning, an argument that Dr. Kendi makes is that ultimately the, the way forward is to help people realize everybody rises together, that you can work in self-interest, and in self-interest, you know, that white, white working people have, have self-interest in making sure that black working people are also well taken care of. Yes. That, 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 that the race and class things are intrinsically tied together, particularly in America. Particularly Good socialist messages right. um, hit yeah. at that hard. Right. Um, but he does point out, you know, the only, the only people that need to be persuaded into altruism are the people who are actually going to lose power. And there's like a hundred of them. Well, and they're never going to be convinced. It's right. not about it's not them. about convincing them, though. That's right. the thing. It's right. a real power is about convincing the people who don't have power mm-hmm. and taking power from the people who have power. It's not about allowing the people who have power to keep having power. Right. And part of that real power is getting those people who think they have power to realize that they don't actually have power. Yes. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, we've been talking for well over an hour and a half, so uh, All right. we could probably pull this to a close. Sounds good. Justin, thank you so much for joining me. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, Justin and I used to live together, and we'd have conversations like this on a pretty regular basis, and I, uh, I do miss those. I do, too. Yeah. yeah. It's good to talk to you. It's very good to talk to you. All right. Thank you for listening to Sonic Rita. We'll see you next time. Listening to Cinema Credo, Conversations on Film and Faith. I'm your host and writer, Adam Bless. 
Film clips this week are used under fair use. Thank you to Steve Richter for the use of our theme song, Madrasita, off of his album, Beloved. Check out his work at steverichter.com. That's S-T-E-E-V-R-I-C-H-T-E-R.com. Uh-huh.